Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Israel has fought three wars inside the Gaza Strip in less than a decade. Now it may be on the brink of the fourth. Last Friday, there was a huge protest along Israel's border with Gaza that got really bloody really quickly. 15 Palestinians died at the time, hundreds more were wounded, at least four more Palestinians have died since. Israeli and Palestinian leaders said more violence was likely, and they also say there's the real possibility of another all-out war. So Jen, you wrote about this for this little website, Vox.com, this week. Let's start at the literal beginning of what they were protesting. Right. So the protest on Friday was meant to kick off this massive kind of six week long series of protests and sit ins and demonstrations. There were 30,000 Palestinians roughly that took part on Friday. And it was based around the land day, which is this kind of symbolic protest that is meant to symbolize and kind of commemorate the loss of Palestinian land. So the expulsion of Palestinians uh, from where they had been living during the creation of Israel. So it's a big kind of protest that's meant to do that every year at the border. It's also related to the blockade of Gaza, which we'll talk about more. But basically, since 2007, Israel and Egypt have imposed this really severe land, sea, and air blockade on Gaza. Um, It's really restricted living conditions um, and made pretty much horrible situation in Gaza. So that was also part of the protest. And just briefly to define blockade, so we're talking about you can't really get in by sea, you can't really get in by air, and it's very hard to get in and out by land. Right. Yeah. There are literal like ships blocking off like the coast of Gaza. There, you know, is an actual fence. There's a border fence basically uh, blocking the entire border between Israel and Gaza. And that's where this protest was taking place. And, you know, it's created some really dramatic, horrific living conditions. So residents have access to only four hours of electricity per day. Only 10 percent even have access to clean drinking water because the sewage has basically backed up into the water treatment system. The unemployment rate is 46 percent, which is just insane. Um, it's hard to get medicine, access to, to medical supplies, food. I mean, it's just it's just horrific. And, and so, Zach, when we're talking about how horrific this is, the obvious question is why would any country, whether it's Egypt or in this case Israel, why would Israel allow these kind of conditions to endure and why would they use force in the way that they did? They had drones dropping tear gas. They had snipers involved. So from the Israeli point of view— why this? Yeah, this blockade has been going on for over a decade at this point, and the reason why is fairly straightforward. The Gaza Strip is ruled by Hamas, which is a Palestinian militant group that is dedicated, or at least has been in the past, to destroying Israel and has launched or used to launch regularly cross-border suicide bombing attacks. They still occasionally fire missiles into Israel. And so from the Israeli point of view, Hamas needs to be starved into submission. They can't be allowed to have access to lots of materials uh, that they might use, dual-use materials is the technical term, like construction materials that could be used. Yeah, concrete. That could be used uh, to build military bunkers and things of that nature. So the blockade was designed to essentially force Hamas to come to heel, to rejoin the West Bank leadership, which is more moderate and otherwise generally – destroy its control over the Gaza Strip. But this has been going for over a decade, as I've said, and it hasn't worked so far. 
Well, let's come back to that because also the other part of the blockade, of course, is Egypt blockading the south. So you have Gaza blockaded by the Israeli border, then on the south by the Egyptians, and then also at sea. I do just want to help paint a picture briefly because I've spent quite a bit of time in Gaza. And it's kind of hard to convey, but I'll do my best, the enormity of the suffering, but also just how densely populated this is. So Gaza is about twice the size of of D.C. physically. And to get into Gaza, you go through— this Israeli-run border crossing, which after a suicide bombing that had taken place in the crossing, you don't see people. It's really eerie. All the Israelis who are there are kind of a level up behind bulletproof and armored glass. And so you're kind of guided through by people saying, now step forward to the next metal detector, and then the next, then the next. So when I went, there was nobody coming in. A lot of people trying to get out, but nobody coming in. And then when you're in Gaza, you stand on the beach, and it's the same beach that, you know, some number of miles away is the beach of Tel Aviv, this kind of bustling city. The Gaza beach is empty. It's covered in trash. From the beach, you can see the Israeli naval ships off in the water. You could physically see part of the blockade. When you're in Gaza City, you can see posters everywhere to Palestinians who have been killed by Israeli drone strikes, of Palestinians who have died in suicide bombings. One of the things that was most striking to me, and I'll kind of end here, was Israeli drone strikes in Gaza City, we can debate the morality, we can debate the legality of it. They are extraordinarily precise. I went once to a street. It was a crowded street. One side were real estate agencies, one side were apartment buildings. And an Israeli drone strike a day before I got there had blown up a single car on that street, killed no one else, wounded no one else. And when I spoke to the Palestinians, they made no secret, obviously, of what they felt about Israel. But even there, there was sort of this grudging, like, oh, that's kind of impressive. They got just that one person. But the level of suffering, the level of kind of Palestinian entrapment, for lack of a better word, the phrase sometimes people use as an open-air prison, it's kind of a loaded term, but you cannot really get out of Gaza. And you cannot really get into Gaza. And if you're in Gaza, Jen, your point from before, you don't have electricity. You don't have water. Disease is growing. You don't have jobs. And it's kind of this, another cliche, but I think it's accurate. It's like this powder keg. And Israel can ignore it when there's no violence. But then suddenly, whoop, you're at war there again because this powder keg explodes. Right. And, you know, it's important to point out that there were, like I said, 30,000 Palestinians who took part in this protest. And the vast, vast majority, like that's a huge amount of people, were in these tent cities and were peacefully protesting. They were basically holding a sit-in where they went and set up tents. So just to kind of lay out what's actually going on. So the actual border between Israel and Gaza, you know, there's like this border fence, security fence, even what you call it is a it's a fraught kind of debate. But then there's this kind of like no-go zone that Israel says, yes, this is technically still Gaza territory, but you're not allowed to get X number of meters within the border or we will, you know, fire, we will use force um, to push you back. So the actual like tent city was set up way, way, like meters and meters back from the actual border. So the vast majority of the protest was peaceful. But then you had small groups of predominantly young men, predominantly in large part encouraged, we could say, um, by Hamas to kind of charge toward the border and protest. There were a couple kind of instances of maybe like one or two people trying to to cut through the fence. Um, just to make it clear, it's not like 30,000 people were rushing this border here and then the Israelis were firing back. It was a small groups of people. And to be fair, they were throwing Molotov cocktails. According to the Israelis, some small group of Palestinians even fired toward Israeli soldiers. They were burning tires and they were rolling the burning tires toward the border. But again, you had this heavily militarized border. You had the Israelis. They knew this protest was coming. So they sent up to, I think, at least 100 special forces snipers to the border And they were really clear, like, if you come close to the border, we have explicit permission to fire live ammunition at you. So, you know, you have these 
people who are very not well armed, right, with Molotov cocktails and tires. But they're going up and they're they're protesting and putting their lives on the line. And then the Israelis like, well, we told you. And then they're shooting them down. So it's just kind of a horrific scene, no matter how you slice it. There's also footage of unarmed people being shot here. People oh, yeah. who don't or don't even have the primitive arms that you're talking about. Like in some of the videos, you see people with rifles being shot by uh, Israeli forces. But in others of them, you see people who are just standing there. Or being, running away. Yeah, it's 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 complex. But I want to abstract away a little bit from the specifics of the scenario to talk about the broader context here. And the picture that, that the two of you have painted of Israel's Gaza policy is a kind of technical brilliance in the sense that Israel has this incredibly sophisticated uh, and advanced way of policing Gaza. It has the best technology. It has drone strikes that can hit a single car. It has this very built-up border where you can't even see people, right? But all of this serves a policy that doesn't seem to be accomplishing its goal, right? Its goal is to I mean, in theory, anyway, its goal is to end Hamas's control over the Gaza Strip or at least prevent a worse group from taking power and ultimately, like, pave the way for peaceful coexistence. In reality, it seems to be infuriating the people in Gaza and, and inflicting mass humanitarian suffering. And Israeli politicians don't worry about that so much as far well, as I Well, I mean, let's – abstract upon the abstract because it's important to understand oftentimes when we talk in the media, it's like Israel and the Palestinians. And it's important to remember geographically what Gaza is and then what the West Bank is. So when you talk about, let's say, the Palestinian government, the Palestinian negotiators, they are almost entirely in the West Bank. That is geographically different from the Gaza Strip and it's ruled differently. And this is a really kind of vital thing to understand. 2005, Israel withdrew all of its settlements and settlers from the Gaza Strip. 2006, there were elections, Hamas won. 2007, there's a civil war that broke out between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority obviously being with the U.S. backs. And this was, I covered this at the time, this was horrific. You had roughly 500 Palestinians die, depending on the number you use. Hamas executed Palestinian Authority officials. You had people being thrown off of buildings. This was bad. I mean, this wasn't Israel fighting the Palestinians. This was Palestinians fighting the Palestinians. And ever since, there have been attempts to reunify, to have the Palestinian Authority retake control of Gaza so there'd be one Palestinian government. And it hasn't worked. So there's the policy question of Israel towards Palestinians and Gaza specifically. And there's a policy question of Palestinians towards Palestinians. And last November, you had, in like the latest attempt to bridge this, Hamas turned control over its border crossings back to the Palestinian Authority, which was a big deal. And there was thought of, hey, maybe finally intra-Palestinian pieces around the corner and then not. But so like when we talk about the complexity of this, it, it isn't simply an Israeli-Palestinian issue. It's a Palestinian-Palestinian issue, which just makes it all the more hard to understand. Right. And protests like this and, and more importantly, the Israeli, you know, the really harsh overuse, I would say, of deadly force plays right into Hamas's hands. Right. So, Zach, your point earlier about how this this policy kind of in a, from a technical sense seems to you know be really advanced and, and powerful with their military prowess. But the actual policy. Right. So, you know, the policy is to fire if they come close to this border. But. If you're Hamas and you're trying to say, like, we're really the ones who are defending you against Israel, who is, you know, shooting Palestinian civilians for no reason, look at the Palestinian Authority over there in the West Bank. They're collaborationists, right? They, they do cooperate. The security forces cooperate with the Israeli security forces to police and govern the West Bank. So Hamas is like, look, they sold out. You know, they're trying to do all this stuff at the UN and Israel's blocking them. All this international, peaceful kind of 
methods that Palestinian Authority has tried to pursue on the international stage, Israel and the U.S. and a few other countries have blocked. So Hamas is like, look, the only thing we can do is to fight. This is the only thing that will work. And so when they do these protests and then Israel kind of just plays their part, right, and plays right back into it, then again, Hamas is like, look, I told you, these guys are bad. They're going to just shoot you. We have to fight. And we are the only ones who are standing up for you. And it gives Hamas more legitimacy even though the entire point was to take away legitimacy from them. And just, you know, today Hamas announced um, that it was going to pay $3,000 to the family of anyone killed in these protests, 500 to any Palestinians who are critically wounded, and 200 to even those with more minor injuries. So they're very, very smart. They're very savvy in how they play this game. And it's it's unfortunate to see the Israeli side just playing right back into it rather than thinking, hey, maybe what if we exercised a little bit more restraint and, and didn't respond this way? We could take away some of that narrative. So I would, I would push back on that actually pretty hard. I mean, Hamas is a terrorist group. They've carried out suicide bombings. They have killed hundreds of Israelis. They are considered a terrorist group by the U.S., by the EU. They have no connection anymore that's of any real significance with a lot of their Arab neighbors. Egypt hammers Hamas, frankly, oftentimes as hard as Israel does. Egypt has sealed the border. They allow nothing in because they're worried about Hamas attacks uh, back into Egyptian territory. You've had Arab Gulf countries said, we will rebuild Gaza and pledge money, which hasn't come. So... I would push back the idea that Hamas had huge legitimacy growing so that it, that it is growing further because of Israeli attacks. No, no, no. I mean in Gaza. Right. But but even in Gaza, polling, of course, is hard to track. We have no idea how popular they are. And so they, I just don't buy the argument that absent this, you'd have like a less popular Hamas that might then lose elections if there were elections. But because Israel strikes, therefore Hamas is more popular. I just don't buy that in part because, one, there's no way of proving it. And two, because Hamas is so incredibly isolated, not just by Israel, but by the Gulf countries and by the Egyptians. So, you know, I take the point that you may have an Israeli overreaction here. I agree. But to the point that Hamas is more legitimate if Israel didn't do this, that's where I think where where I don't agree. Well, I think it's it's complicated in the sense that it is the case that Hamas is isolated and unpopular, but the Fatah leadership, the other Palestinian faction that controls the West Bank, is also unpopular because it's deeply corrupt and complicit in the Israeli occupation. And it's also the case that when there is a violent conflict with Israel, Hamas's polling numbers, again, in as much as we can rely on polling on Gaza and the West Bank, they, they go up. And that's because during violent upswings, Hamas is seen as the group that's more effectively resisting the Israeli occupation. And so that's not to say that Hamas is super popular. I I don't think they are. No, I I didn't mean to come across that what I was saying. The point you're making is exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah, it's it's that this is a situation that nobody really wins out of except for maybe Hamas. Certainly not – Ordinary Palestinians who really suffer the most right. and are put in a situation where they're forced to choose between uh, a corrupt government and a violent theocratic one. And we're also in a moment where in the not distant past, you had at least American rhetoric saying violence is really bad. Both sides should cool it. And that's kind of gone. I say kind of because we were talking about this when we were talking about this episode yesterday the kind of consistent incoherence slash schizophrenia of the Trump administration that we see on, you know, Russia, Syria, et cetera, and the et cetera being everything else, literally. But here you had Jason Greenblatt, who's the main U.S. negotiator designed to kind of be the envoy to the Palestinians, condemn Hamas pretty much entirely and say this is all their fault. They were leading violent marches, 
Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. Heather Nauert, State Department spokesperson, give them much more measured. Both sides should calm down. We condemn the loss of life, being very State Department. But you don't really have a consistent message. You don't have the U.S. really saying, hey, Israel, back off. Or for that matter, saying to the Egyptians, hey, Egypt, let more supplies in. You don't really have any of that. I think absent that, you have Egypt doing what it thinks it needs to do. In part, that means working really close with Israel. Israel doing what it thinks it needs to do. And if you're the Palestinians, as has been the case so tragically for decades, you're stuck in the middle and, and you have nobody advocating for you. You know, We've had this trip this past week of Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the, the current leader of Saudi Arabia. It, he made clear he couldn't give a fuck less about the Palestinians. He did an interview with Jeff Goldberg from The Atlantic where he talked about how Israel deserves to be a Jewish state. And it was clear, Jeff Goldberg kind of wrote this in the intro to his piece, it was very clear that Mohammed bin Salman really doesn't care about the Palestinians. Like, it was a talking point, Jen, for decades. And that talking point, even among a lot of the Arab leaders, just quickly is kind of gone. Yeah, his his comments were so shocking um, that King Salman, like his father, had to actually make a like, public statement saying, we really support the Palestinians, you guys, I promise. Like, they had to walk it back because there was so much outcry, like, wait a second, you know, Saudi Arabia is supposed to be, like, the defender of the Muslim world, as they like to portray themselves, uh, which is a laugh. But the Palestinian cause used to be, like, you know, the cause celebre for for decades, right? And in large part because of the the Iranian nuclear threat and because of just so many things that have changed, the Syrian civil war in Iraq and, and the invasion of Iraq, so much has changed in the Middle East that unfortunately the Palestinian cause has lost all resonance whatsoever. I mean, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who's now the leader of, of al-Qaeda, used to say that the road to Jerusalem, you know, goes through Cairo, but he knew that like Jerusalem was the big thing, right? Like that is how you have to rally the troops, if you will. Like if you want to to get, you know, all Arabs or all Muslims in general to kind of focus on one single thing, all you have to do is bring up the Palestinian cause. And that's not really true anymore. Well, the, and, the question is, who is it unfortunate for? Right. You said it's unfortunate. Yeah, Palestinians. It's unfortunate for the Palestinians, <laughs> right. certainly. But from the point of view of the Israeli government, this is – It's great for this, them. this is a dream, yeah. right? Like they're – for a long time, we discussed this conflict in terms of an Arab-Israeli conflict. But now that's that's just not accurate anymore. It's really an Israeli-Palestinian conflict with various different international actors weighing in in various different ways on various different sides given the circumstances. It's not a united Arab front or even a united Muslim front. It, it's neither of those things. And the current Israeli government's approach, as far as I can tell, seems to be indefinite stasis. Right. While you have a very right-wing government, some elements of it of which literally want to annex a large chunk of the West Bank. And reinvade Gaza and take back over. Right. Avigdor Lieberman, the defense minister, has said that over and over. That we should go back into Gaza. And other parts of the government don't want to do that. That's why they're not doing it. <laughs> right. right. So it seems that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, his goal is to – not really have to do anything on the Palestinian front to keep things so in insofar as he remains in government. Indefinite stasis, obviously, being the great name for Zach's high school emo band, which we will eventually find music from. But we'll end there. I mean, this unfortunately is, is a story that probably will not end this week, next week, a year from now, a decade from now. And we will stop there and move to elsewhere. For elsewhere, we're going to get kind of meta and talk about journalism. And more specifically, how much more dangerous the world is becoming for journalists and journalism when Donald Trump says things like this. You could pick a reporter, a Baltic reporter, ideally, 
<laughs> Real news, not fake news. Go ahead. So that was from a White House press conference this week. But here's the thing. Trump talks about fake news, about how the American press is the enemy of the people. But he actually hasn't done much to try to, thankfully, to try to limit what the American press can say. That's not the case in Malaysia. You know, Zach, this was something that you spotted, you've been kind of fired up about. Hot take it away. So Malaysia's lower house of parliament just passed a bill that would be the world's first ever law criminalizing fake news. That is, the government makes determinations about what is fake news. And if it determines that you spread fake news, it can put you in jail for up to six years and a fine of around $123,000. That's the maximum penalty. But still, that's, that's crazy given that the government has unilateral power to make determinations about this. And the grounds that they've done it are really fascinating. One Malaysian government official said it was quite literally inspired by President Trump. Another one said that fake news under its definition would include any news about reporting about a government scandal that was not confirmed by the government. Like, it's really not subtly an attempt to crack down on a free press. Right. And you've seen kind of similar moves in other countries. So India, Prime Minister Narendra Modi had proposed kind of similar legislation that would punish print and web journalists for spreading fake news. 24 hours after he announced the plan, they had to walk it back because there was international and domestic outcry. And that one was way less sweeping in terms of the, the measures that it was trying to impose than the Malaysian law. First of all, there are a few problems. So one, who gets to define what is fake news, right? So are we talking about news the government does not like, like in the Malaysian case? Yeah. Yes. That's what they're talking about. I think people have lost what we actually mean when we talk about fake news. Originally, it was people literally getting paid to write fake articles, like on purpose, knowingly. That's very different from a journalist in good faith, making an error and then doing a correction and things like that. Like we have our own ethical standards in journalism that we follow. That's not fake news. That's just news. That's just how we do the news. And we correct things if we get it wrong. And, and ideally, we're transparent about that. And the problem is that you have some countries like in France and in the UK making, you know, at least trying to make good faith efforts to actually battle the problem of outlets who are pumping out fake content on purpose. And then you have these repressive countries who are using this as an excuse to further crack down on the press, on the free press, in ways that, you know, it's just giving them an excuse. And, you know, could they have done this before? Sure, they already were trying. But now they have this really great phrase that everyone knows, fake news. And it's this, you know, easy excuse to go, look, we're fighting this really big problem. We don't want meddling. Also, don't report on our scandals. And, you know, Zach, the, the quote you referenced was fantastic. And I actually want to just read the quote because it was so fantastic. So this was from one of the Malaysian government officials explaining the, the law. And the quote was, when the American president made fake news into a buzzword, the world woke up. And when he started to use he, Trump, two things have happened, right? So you have, in some countries, they're not repressive, including Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is being hammered by corruption scandals. And he just straight calls them fake news just because that's a good way of like dismissing them. And he and Trump are obviously very close. So that's one level where you could just have Democratic leaders say fake news, fake news, fake news to dismiss coverage of it. And then, Jen, there's the other much harder and scarier one where you actually have attempts to ban it and criminalize it. And what I find so kind of troubling is setting aside Malaysia clearly trying to cover up a gigantic corruption scandal that involves hundreds of millions of dollars kind of hidden away in different bank accounts by the current government, setting that aside – you do have a serious problem with fake news, right? Like Facebook has sort of owned up to the fact that during the 2016 election, you had huge amounts of made-up news 
spreading through the Facebook ecosphere and probably in some way impacting the outcome. So the notion that there is fake news used for propaganda purposes, used by Russia to influence elections, that is for sure a thing. Separately, the notion that governments will try to use that thing to crack down on their own people, that's where it gets so tricky, I think, and so dangerous. Right. And the problem here is if you attempt to deal with the actual problem of fake news, you can end up not only providing cover for non-democratic countries or questionably democratic countries like Malaysia in terms of further crackdowns on press freedoms, you can actually incentivize them to do it, right? Like that quote from the Malaysian government official is so telling because it illustrates something that political scientists like to talk about, which is that uh, Western governments and their behavior serves as – it sends signals to other countries. Right. It lets them know what is and isn't permissible and what might or might not incur Western sanction or condemnation or otherwise raise the cost of doing business in Western countries. Uh, and Malaysia doesn't want to threaten trade ties with the United States. It doesn't want to deal with a crisis created by U.S. condemnation. But when Trump goes around blasting the media's fake news and saying he wishes he could deal with American media like some more repressive countries do, um, I don't know if he's literally said that, but he's basically said things amounting to that. I mean, blasting them in the White House. Yeah. Right? But Jen, there's something you said before that I found really interesting. So you were saying that some governments, I think you said France was one of them in particular, there was a good faith effort. But so what were, what were those countries trying to do? Because I'm just literally not as familiar with it. Right. So the UK has uh, planned a fake news unit that's trying to deter kind of people from creating misinformation, creating fake news. Is that news. the actual name? Fake uh, news unit? <laughs> I, I believe so. I believe that's it is. That's not a CBS procedural. That's like an actual thing. <laughs> Law and order, fake news unit, FNU. Can't dun, wait to dun, watch dun, that. Dun, 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 dun. Dun. Um, and in France, Macron is, is doing kind of the similar thing, trying to kind of put together basically like government accountability bodies to try to work on the problem, right? And Germany has, like, hate speech laws, right? Like, there are broader, like, ways that governments deal with issues of what is and is not permissible to say in the public space, right? In large swaths of Europe, their kind of approach to free speech is very different than in the United States. We are very hardcore about the First Amendment. We, you know, For now. <laughs> for, for so now. far, uh, you know, it's basically like, as long as it's not yelling fire in a crowded theater or, you know, actively, you know, hate speech, we will pretty much let you say it and defend it. We meaning the legal system, the justice system, not President Trump. But in other countries in Europe, you know, they do have a little bit more leeway to kind of police what you can and cannot say. But then you go kind of to the far end of the spectrum. So in Egypt, right, they just recently had presidential elections. Can can we put that in quotes? Sorry. The elections (laughs) Elections, air quotes. And CC, President CC won with something like, what, 97%? It was a nail-biter. Of the vote. Yeah, it was really, really That's kind impressive that 3% of people there. voted against them. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think, those, I think actually the number two place was like incomplete ballots. This is like the second runner-up. And the only person running against him was a huge supporter of his. So it's really legitimate elections. But the thing is that he and the government, the Egyptian government came out and said, if you journalists write anything, specifically foreign journalists who were living in Cairo, if you write anything about the elections, about, you know, the illegitimacy, about anything, you will be summoned, you will be punished, you will potentially be jailed or fined. And it was very serious. Like the ministry that is in charge of this was summoning journalists by name to come and account for what they had published. Like that's very scary, right? Just for talking about the election results in a way that the government didn't like. So we're talking like it's a sliding scale, right? But again, to Zach's point, like 
if you have somebody like President Trump in the White House who seems to think this is fine, this kind of stuff, then dictators know that they're probably going to get away with it. And that's a really big, scary problem. And since we love to end with big, scary problems, we'll end with the big, scary problem. Uh, thanks to our producer, Bridget Armstrong, our engineer, Griffin Tanner, Julie Bogans, our social media manager, Diana Elbasha, who helped this week to make sure we didn't mess up anything on Israel-Palestine and thus cause the internet to hate all of us. If we did, it's on us, not her. It's on us. Very much not on her. And if you want to complain, email jennifer at vox.com and only jennifer at vox.com. Also, Diana, congratulations on getting married. Congrats, Diana. She's going to kill us. Um, But listen, if you want to reach us, email us at voxworldly.com. That's worldly at vox.com. Tweet us, hashtag worldlypodcast. Subscribe, rate, review at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Gen Zach. Thank you. We'll all be with everyone next week. Yoki Zach, thank you.